my hymn, if we were singing, would be number 17 in PHSS. Himself he could not save, he on the cross must die, or mercy could not come to ruin sinners nigh. Yes, Christ, the Son of God, must bleed, that sinners might from sin be freed. Himself he could not save, for justice must be done. Our sin's full weight must fall upon the sinless one, for nothing less could God accept in payment of that fearful debt. Himself he could not save, love's st stream too deeply flowed. In love himself he gave to pay the debt we owed. Obedience to the Father's will and love to him did all fulfill. Himself he could not save, but now exalted high, a prince, a savior, he has saved and brought us nigh. We live in him who lives above and sing with joy his deathless love. I'd like us to take as an introductory text something that John wrote elsewhere because I think it, it captures in one sentence the message of John 19. It's actually 1 John 3 and 16. There's a, an easy scripture to remember where it's found. 1 John 3 and 16. Now this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And the emphasis here is love and proactivity on Jesus' part. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness. Message means word or speech, what it, what it says. For the message of the cross is foolishness, that's absurd to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's dynamy, the word we get for dynamite. But the power of God, we preach Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. As we reverently move on in our study to the narrative of the cross and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, it begs a question, what does this really mean to me? Brothers and sisters, it is the power and the wisdom of God, dynamite. It dramatically changes everything and it's the very opposite to foolishness. It's the outworking of all the purposes of the omnipotent, omniscient, holy, righteous, and loving God for all of time and all eternity. This is big. Oh, that we all may always may see the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus in these terms. And if ever we don't, that God will give us a renewed revelation of what it all means. If we've never done this before, or, or even if we have, I'd encourage us to immerse ourselves in the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps alongside some Old Testament prophecies relating to the sufferings of the Messiah. Scriptures like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 40, Psalm 69. You'll have others uh, that are favourites as well. You know, when we study the, the crucifixion, holistically looking at all the narratives and 
the Old Testament prophecies, we see a precious jewel in its setting. You know, it's a, it's a meeting place. Calvary is a meeting place. And it's where the eternal purposes of God for the salvation of fallen men find their fulfillment. It's monumental. <laughs> and the meeting place is where the worst of man's sin, the unrestrained wrath of God, the complete satisfaction of God's righteous just judgment, and the ultimate and absolute expression of love, divine love, something called grace. It's God's riches dispensed at Christ's expense. It's where all of these things meet. So let's compose ourselves as with great reverence, we read and consider the things that John calls to bear witness to his contention that Jesus is the Christ and that anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. It's John 19 verses 16 to 37. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here, they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of Jews, the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. This man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, and the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments amongst them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture could be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the preparation day and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. 
The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was given has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. In my meditation, I found myself resetting what I already know and going back to fundamental questions that someone would ask who's perhaps confronted by this spectacle for the first time. Fundamental question, why did Jesus die? Why did he have to die? These are, are familiar answers to us, but I, I just wanna share the reasons, the answers to these questions. He died so that, that I might live. It's the, the principle of substitution the self-sacrificing God, paying the punishment for my sin. Paul wrote to the Galatians, the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Isaiah prophesied the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And Paul again to the Corinthians, he who had no sin was made to be sin for us, that in him we may become the righteousness of God. So he had to die. But why did he have to die this way? Let him die in dignity, an old man. It would never have happened, would it? Jesus was perfect. He had no sin. He would never have died. There had to be an intervention for him to die. There's a divine principle as well about the importance of blood being shed, Hebrews 9 and 22. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. That's really the principle of the Old Testament sacrifices, each one pointing to this ultimate sacrifice of the Lord Jesus at Calvary. And Leviticus teaches us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. He had to die by the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood demonstrated that death had taken place. Remember Exodus uh, 12, the Passover, I will see the blood and pass over you. So why not allow him to die behind closed doors? Okay, the shedding of blood was necessary, but give him some dignity, make it private. Well, the world would never have known, would they? Where would the evidence be? It had to be a spectacle, something that the Lord Jesus knew early on in his own development, as he understood who he was. If we go back to John 12 and verse 27, he said, now my heart is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd was there and heard it, said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world must be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. It had to be a public spectacle so that the whole world would know. Why torture? Why torture by crucifixion? There's a strange anomaly that the Jews had developed a special way of killing animals, kosher, that was considered to be the most humane way of killing. So why, why in this divine plan was torture by crucifixion to be the method? Now, I think the answer to that deep, rich question that probably is, is troubling to many, many people that makes the, the message of the cross foolishness is his death had to demonstrate the abhorrence of sin to a holy God. And crucifixion was the way that God chose to illustrate his abhorrence to sin. Thinking of a, a list, a short list of things that um, are demonstrated about sin and the way God views it through the spectacle that is the crucifixion. crucifixion. First of all, sin brings a death penalty, and the death penalty, crucifixion, was a, a means of execution. Ezekiel 18 and 20, the soul that sins, it must die. It had to be a method of execution, punishment. Sin brings with it shame. You know that lovely verse in Hebrews 12, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. God wanted to make it very clear that sin brings with it shame. You know, that's something that perhaps even in our world today, sin has somehow been disconnected from shame. It's almost become fashionable. Men invent ways of sin, of doing sin. But from God's perspective, it's a shameful thing. And Jesus' death needed to demonstrate that. Number three, sin brings with it pain. Pain to the sinner, pain to the world. The whole world is damaged by sin and pain to God. It's a lovely verse in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. No more pain. And that's because sin has been dealt with. Sin brings with it a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse by the law by becoming a curse for us. What is written, cursed is everyone who is hung, hung upon a tree. Galatians 3 and 13. For all of these reasons, even before crucifixion had been invented, the Old Testament pointed to this being the method by which Jesus must die. 
With this background, it's no wonder, is it, that the symbol of the cross has become the world's most recognizable icon. What the Lord said in John 12, as we've read, is true. When I am lifted up, I will draw all kinds of men to myself. And the, the message of the cross has been so effective, but never let it be considered something sentimental. You know, sometimes perhaps the, the crucifix has become that. It's an item of jewelry. It represents the time. It does not represent the time when a weak, innocent man was overcome by evil men. Let's go to that first verse in, in the, the first expression in, in verse 16. The soldiers took charge of him. It was because it was in the divine purposes of God that the cruelest of men would take charge of him. Jesus knew this and yielded himself to them. John 10 and 17, we've been there in our study. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay down my life of my own account. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. This command I receive from my father. And then it says of these words, the Jews were divided. I just wanted to emphasize the point that although the soldiers had taken charge of him, they only took charge of him because they were given the opportunity, to, they were allowed to do that. Back to our introductory verse, this is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. This was the Lord Jesus out of love, being proactive and coming to our rescue. What we have before us, brothers and sisters, is the divine orchestration of God's purposes to bring about our redemption because he loves us. There's only a couple of points I'd like to highlight really from the text uh, in the time that remains. And they just seem to emerge from me in, in the med my meditation on what is quite familiar uh, territory to us all. I've already mentioned the soldiers took charge of him. It's because he allowed them to. No one takes my life from me. Verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. Here is what the Lord of glory would have been long anticipating in his earlier life. The thing that struck me was carrying his own cross. The Lord Jesus as a carpenter would have been very familiar with um, trees and, and turning them into things. And as he became familiar with the Old Testament scriptures that predicted his sufferings, and no doubt as he observed other crucifixions going on and the remains of things after a crucifixion, he would anticipate that one day he would have a cross of his own. But it wasn't his own. He didn't deserve to have a cross of his own like the others who were crucified with him. It was my cross. And he made my cross his own and he carried it. Verse 18, here they crucified him. It's an amazing understatement, isn't it? 
four words, here they crucified him. You know, there's a certain dignity shared amongst all the gospel writers not to dwell on the detail of the gore of his sufferings. Crucifixion and, and the floggings that preceded it were arguably the worst kind of execution that man ever invented. But to me, it's conspicuous that none of the gospel writers dwell on that. You know, perhaps there's a case here for less is more. And we should let the Holy Spirit teach us about the sacredness of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus as we revisit it ourselves and meditate upon it. Another point is uh, very clear in, in this passage of scripture that four times the term that the scripture may be fulfilled is mentioned. That's verse 24, 28, 36 and 37. And for me, it just underlines that what was going on was the unfolding will of a predetermined divine plan. The Lord Jesus was in control. God was in control of what was going on. Verse 38, later, knowing that all was now complete and so that the scripture could be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it in a sponge and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When, they had when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And my salvation was accomplished. It is finished. What a, a glorious conclusion to this gruesome thing that, that God wants us to consider. Finally, I just want to go back to verse 24, very precious and um, very specific uh, storyline that John records. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her to his home. I'm just arrested by the statement near the cross of Jesus stood. And it was those who loved him dearly. Perhaps instinctively you would withdraw. But I just feel there's a compelling lesson here that as we embrace the reason for the Lord's sufferings and why it had to be this way, we should approach the cross regularly and be there standing by, immersing ourselves in the reality of it and appreciating what he's accomplishing for us there. In this amazing act and statement that the Lord Jesus made about his mother and John, we just see John emphasizing in his account that there was no self-pity, other-centeredness. Imagine all that the Lord was going through, both in terms of the physical suffering, what he was now accomplishing in the fulfillment of this divine plan for our salvation, and all of that going on. We've not talked about the, the wrath of God here either. Curiously, that's, that's something John chooses to, 
just leave for us to think about. He doesn't mention that at all. But with all of that going on, the Lord was always other-centered and a beautiful illustration. You know, one last point is John's testimony about the cross was very personal. For him, it was a unique and a, a special thing, this interaction that happened from the cross when the Lord was there. And it, it just occurred to me that when we get up and close to the cross, the love we see is accompanied by a commission, which we must respond to. It's a means of showing our love to the one who loved us first. Now you can imagine how the apostle John embraced the Lord's mother because of this amazing commission that he'd been given. Ought that not to be our attitude too, as we're moved by the spectacle of the Lord Jesus, love at Calvary for us. And as we observe that, let's make it personal. And let's respond appropriately to the commission that he gives us to follow him out of love from our hearts. Thank you.